Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've had a lot of shows about President Donald J. Trump, perhaps for some people too many. But one uh, perspective that we haven't really, I think, uh, investigated are Republican critics of Trump. I think this is a particularly interesting area. Uh, The Republican voters against Trump uh, are doing an excellent job, at least in my mind, uh, revealing the contradictions and hypocrisy of of the Trump regime. And there are many Republican critics of of Trump who I think do an excellent job. Max Boot and David Fromm come to mind. But the, the master of this, and some people call him the conscience of the conservative movement, is Peter Weiner. Uh, he's the author of many books, The Death of Politics, his most recent. He worked in the two Bush and Reagan White Houses. And he has, over the last few months, I think, become the most lucid and passionate critic of Trump. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he, he writes a column, a regular column, both for The Atlantic and for uh, The New York Times. His last piece that particularly caught my mind was uh, the New York Times piece, Trump has made alternative facts a way of life. Uh, Pete, what is it about conservatives, real conservatives like you, uh, that that gets your goat, that makes you so passionate about Donald Trump? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Andrew. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'd say several things. Um, one is what I allude to in the column, which is I think that Donald Trump is not just a liar, but he's engaged in a full out, all out assault on truth, an effort to annihilate truth, categories of truth and falsity, um, and to try and overwhelm people with misinformation and disinformation. Um, And that is not conservatism, certainly as I had come to understand it. Um, Indeed, if you go back to the 1980s, which are formative years for me, um, I was in a sense of a child of the Reagan revolution. One of the uh, most important books of that uh, decade for conservatives was The Closing of the American Mind by Alan mm-hmm. Bloom. And Bloom argued, uh, he was a University of Chicago professor, scholar of Plato, a disciple of uh, uh, Leo Strauss. And he argued about this danger of relativism and this, this assault on truth in the academy. And now it's, uh, it, it's not simply been de- confined to the academy, but, but now in politics itself. And that has huge radiating effects. So I'd say that's that's one. I would say um, the transgression of uh, of norms uh, and the rule of law, which conservatives once um, stood um, for uh, proudly and strongly. Um, the damage, the in- tremendous damage that I think he's do- doing to our political and civic culture. Uh, I also think um, I'm not sure this is this is confined to conservatives, but he is just psychologically and emotionally deeply unwell. And I've worked in three administrations. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked in the White House for seven years. Uh, and I, I, I think I have some appreciation for the power of the presidency and the importance. This is, 
interesting to me. I don't know if it's interesting to you and your listeners, but as I've gotten older and been more involved in politics, where politicians check the box on issues has become somewhat less important and their character, their temperament, their judgment, their wisdom has become more important to me. I don't mean to, to, um, play down how important politics is. I spent most of my life in it, but there are so many decisions in life, but especially for a president and in a presidency that you can't anticipate and you have to depend on the the wisdom, judgment, temperament of the person you elect. And I not only don't think that Donald Trump is um, bad in that regard, I don't think that anyone has ever come close to being uh, as bad. The last thing I'll say is I don't consider Trump uh, to be a conservative, and I don't consider his supporters to be conservative. I consider them to be angry populist, ethnic nationalists. Uh, if you go through the pedigree of the history of conservatism, Michael Oakeshott, Burke, Madison, and others, Lincoln, um, there was a deep concern for mob mentality and stoking up the passions of the people. That's why we have the system of government we do with, with checks and balances, separation of powers, and all the rest. And Trump is the antithesis of that. He is constantly stoking up mob mentality and passions. Um, so those are some of the reasons why I, as a conservative, it's, it's not that I'm simply a conservative who is critical of Trump. I'm critical of Trump in large part because I am a conservative. Is your critique then a moral one? It is moral. Uh, it's, I don't think it's confined to, to being just moral, but uh, I would say fundamentally at its core, it is, uh, it is moral because I think politics is at its core, uh, moral. Um, that is, I think politics, which is about a lot of things, um, is finally and fundamentally about justice. Um, the Federalist Papers, Madison talks about that, the end of government is, is, is justice. And I think justice is a moral concept. Um, and I think uh, Donald Trump is a, is a moral um, offense. Um, and I, I use that term broadly. I don't just mean you know, his crudity or his infidelity. Uh, but I mean, beyond that, I think that he is, is a person who, uh, engages often in, in wicked acts and is, uh, is, is, is a, uh, you know, a, a spear at the heart of a lot of moral concepts that are important to, um, to, uh, to this country. You mentioned earlier, uh, how Alan Bloom's closing of the American mind influenced you as a, as a young Reaganite, you brought up Plato's cave and in your last piece for the times, you suggested that Trump supporters at least are living in Plato's cave. They're looking at illusions. They're staring at shadow play on the wall. Is that fair? It is fair. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly what is, what is happening. Uh, I don't think that they see Trump uh, for who he is and for what he is. Uh, I, I think psychologically, it's very, very difficult for them to do that. Uh, I think we know from, from neuroscience and social psychologists that cognitive dissonance is a very difficult state for any of us to live in. Uh, that is to, to live at odds with, with, on some fundamental level, what we know to be true or what we believe. And so it's, I think it's very hard for Trump supporters to, um, to acknowledge uh, the wickedness of some of his acts, the immorality, the moral transgressions. Um, and so what you do in conversations, I had countless conversations with, with Trump supporters, as you can imagine, because I've been a Republican, had been all my life, uh, worked in three Republican administrations. Um, and that was really a, so much my community. So I've had plenty of conversations 
uh, with with them. And in my experience, what you'll get is a, is a kind of glancing reference to, well, he's not perfect, uh, or you know, uh, he's his 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 he could do better on his tweets, uh, which is which is a joke. Uh, it's it's a lot worse than that. But they don't want to acknowledge that because to acknowledge that would really put them in 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 uh, tension with with how they conceive of of themselves. And so they, there's a psychological accommodation, which, uh, which happens and people try and pretend, uh, that he is much worse than he is. One person who was a classic illustration of this is Dennis Prager, who is a radio talk show on, on Salem, which is a conservative Christian, uh, network, which has a number of conservative talk show hosts. Prager has spent most of his life being a moralist, he fascinated fancies himself as a scholar of, of, of the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, and yet if you listen to him, uh, on his radio show, it is unvarnished praise for Donald Trump. And more than that, an obsessive attack on the left. I understand some of the criticisms of the left, but he can't seem to summon within himself the ability to say hardly, or even a critical word of Donald Trump. And that shows you what is happening in terms of how the mind can, can play play tricks on people. And so I think these people are looking at shadows. And of course, as, as you know, from, from the, the shadows in the cave analogy that Plato uses, one of the prisoners is liberated. There's this imagination of when he's liberated and he sees the, he sees the sunlight, he escapes the cave, but he's blinded initially by the sun, but then he, then his eyes adjust. Um, and then he sees things for what they are. He sees the, the, the moon and the sky and, and the sky. Um, then he goes down to the other prisoners uh, who are still in the cave and they turn on him um, because they, they, they haven't seen what he has seen. And um, basically what I'm arguing in, in, my, uh, in my Times uh, column the other day is there's still time for, uh, for, for Trump supporters uh, who have been looking at phantoms uh, to see the world as it is and to, and to be dazzled by the light and to live their lives uh, in accord with truth, which I think is a better way to do it than to live your life in accord with a lie. So perhaps the, the reason why the conservative critique seems so much more convincing than the, the leftist critique is because it's a cultural one. Uh, the, 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 the Bloomian or the Bloomite, I don't know what the right word is, uh, of American culture itself, because wouldn't it be fair to say that that wall that people are staring at isn't just created by Donald Trump or Twitter or Facebook, but it's the dissent, if that's the right word, in America into a, a, a reality television culture, which certainly Donald Trump exemplifies, but he didn't create it. He's not the first or the final figure in, in that history. Is that fair? I think it is. I think it is. And that's a very important point. And I think it's not emphasized enough, which is a lot of these tendencies uh, in modern American life and modern American politics uh, are not things that Trump has, has created. I think what you can argue is that he's accelerated and amplified all the worst tendencies, but these things were in motion before him and they indeed gave rise to him. It isn't as, as if uh, you know, Trump emerged uh, ex nihilo out of nothing. Uh, he was the product of a lot of tendencies that that have gone on in American life, but also on the American right. Um, you know what's what's interesting thought experiment because you, you know if, if if you talk to Trump supporters who are conservative or 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 on the right, 
their argument is constantly that in a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, because they believe his policies are better, they were compelled to to vote for him. That's a legitimate argument. I didn't agree with it, but that's a legitimate argument. But I'll tell you what's a much harder argument for them to explain, which is why in a Republican field in 2016, which had 16 other candidates who by any criteria, any Republican, conservative, evangelical Christian had ever used, any of the other candidates uh, were much better uh, on, on on by that metric, by that criteria than Trump uh, was, whether it's um, familiarity with the conservative cause, dedication to the conservative cause, dedication to the pro-life cause, um, ability to articulate conservative principles, devotion, money, support for the Republican uh, Party, personal character, morality, whatever metric you wanted to use with Donald Trump, you know, he would have been a hundredth on a list of those on those 16. And yet they ended up voting for him. And the question is, what would cause people who for their entire life had uh, you know, pledged fealty to conservative principles to jettison them in order to nominate Donald Trump of all people? And I suspect part of the answer is that it's his style. Uh, they view him as a fighter. Uh, as, as I've said before, they, they think he's going to bring a, a gun to a cultural knife fight. Um, and they seem to take a kind of psychic satisfaction in what I think ought to repel them, which is the crudity, the cruelty, the dehumanization of other people. And that, to me, indicated a kind of pathology on the American right, uh, which, which uh, uh, existed and, and, and allowed somebody like Trump to, uh, to, to emerge and not only win the nomination, but, but of course, the presidency. Do you feel any brotherhood, any affinity with the, the cultural critics on the left, the Frankfurt School or Hannah Arendt, obviously Adorno more than anyone else, who saw a figure like Trump as the inevitable conclusion of, of what they called late stage capitalism? I don't I don't know. I don't know that Trump was was the result of late stage um, capitalism. I think you can have capitalism and, and morality uh, twinned. Um, and I don't think that Trump is is the inevitable result of it. I, I certainly would be willing to concede that capitalism uh, that, that is uh, um, un, un, unvarnished uh, and and unalloyed um, uh, can create uh, problems in a society, whether it's the the income gap, um, the haves and the have nots, uh, to some extent, the globalization. Uh, and 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 other things which have amplified and exaggerated and 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 caused some problems that that allowed a populist figure like like Trump to uh, to emerge. I don't think that's an indictment of capitalism because I I believe capitalism is is probably the most moral economic system we've created and has lifted more people out of poverty and done more good than any other economic system. But that doesn't mean that you can't have uh, you know variations of, of capitalism or that government can't sand off some of the harder edges of capitalism. Ca government has always done that and has to do it. And I, just for context, um, I'm a person who was part of a group they were referred to as reform conservatives in 2014, 2015. So this was pre-Trump. And we had actually put together an agenda and were speaking quite vocally about a concern, which was that the Republican Party and the conservative movement had lost touch with middle class concerns, and that it it was stuck in a kind of time warp, uh, where, um, as a friend of mine put it, every 
you know, Republican woke up and thought it was January 20th, 1981, when Reagan had been inaugurated. And the circumstances are different than then. The challenges are different and government has to respond to it. And I don't think that that happened. I think that a kind of intellectual laziness took over on the, um, on the American, uh, American right and created some of these, some of these, uh, these openings. You wrote uh, on March 13th in, in another wonderful Atlantic piece that the Trump presidency is over. Uh, you, you meant that, of course, in a, in, in a symbolic sense. What comes after Trump, though, um, in the Republican Party? Is there going to be a, a, a terrible bloodletting? Is there going to be civil war? Or will, will there be a return to sanity? That's a great question. I don't think anybody can answer it, in part because there are too many variables out there. One, honestly, depends on not just if Trump loses, but by how much he loses and whether other Republicans go down with him. My own view is that the bigger the loss sustained by Republicans and by Trump, the better, because that will ex- uh, accelerate getting the poisons, uh, the toxins out of the out of the system. I think that Republicans we've 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 got, we've gone through this dance long enough to know that the, the moral qualms are not going to cause republicans to speak out with rare exceptions like Mitt Romney who I think has acted honorably but for the most part the uh, republican lawmakers uh, are are in lockstep with with Trump so it wasn't going to be a moral appeal that was going to to change them it has to be a sense that their own party and their own careers are going to be blown to bits by Trump and Trumpism um, so that's that's one factor, and that of course has to play out. We'll see what happens in in uh, in November. Um, but beyond that, I'm I'm guessing that there will be a a, a real uh, intense struggle to shape the future of the Republican Party. Um, you've got people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, basically the entire Fox lineup, talk radio, and so forth, and and then their intellectual or quasi intellectual figures who were. Uh, have an affinity with the kind of right that you see in Europe, uh, the, the ethnic nationalist um, variation, and and they're not going to go anywhere either. So they're going to they're going to fight for for the future of the Republican Party to to uh, you know mirror what they believe. But there are a number of people who are tradition more traditional conservatives. I, I would say that see the world much more like I do. Um, who are going to have a say in this as well. And by the way, the, there are more people in Congress, senators uh, in particular, uh, and I know this for a fact, who in private conversations, their critique of Trump is not any less harsh than mine, uh, but they don't say it publicly, and, and I do. Um, but I have a suspicion that an awful lot of them will feel liberated once Donald Trump has, um, has, left, has left the scene. Um, now they still have a lot to answer for, uh, because character is determined what, what you say when circumstances are hard, not when they're easy. And in moments of moral crisis, uh, it matters where you stand. But, um, I think it's going to be a jump ball, Andrew, honestly, and I have no idea how it's, how it's going to, uh, how it's going to play out. Um, all I know is that the best you can do is to make your case with integrity um, and, you know, in some degree of courage, um, and to be as articulate as you can for the causes you care about to try and connect that cause, uh, to, uh, to human flourishing, um, and, and, and hope you prevail. 
We've had a number of people on the show who have spoken openly about their fear of violence around the election and certainly a, a violence which would be fanned by Trump. How fearful of, of, are you of a descent into violence a, a, around the election or caused by Trump and some of his more extreme supporters, who are, of course, it seems at least, armed to the hilt? Well, I am concerned about violence. I mean, we're already seeing violence uh, you know, in the streets because of the George Floyd killing, but Donald Trump's response to it, uh, including at Lafayette Square and what happened, what happened there, um, and we saw the protests and 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 some riots throughout the United States. The riots have calmed down, but look, this country is at a boiling point. Uh, it's 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 near. An, uh, let me just put it this way: that the kindling is very very dry, and it doesn't take uh, much of a match to set things aflame. So I'm worried about it. Now, how that plays itself out, whether it's widespread coast-to-coast violence or if it's episodic, I don't know. I, I hope it's contained. I, I think the difference here with, say, 1968, which is the year that is most often uh, analogized to this, to this period, and in some ways this is not as bad as, as 68. I mean, you can go through, I mean, there were assassinations in 68, King, Kennedy, uh, Malcolm X had, uh, you know, earlier, you had the Watts riot in 65, which, which then led to much more broad spread violence. You had the violence at the democratic national convention you, in, in Chicago, you had, of course, the Vietnam war, Kent state, all of those things came together in that period. And we haven't seen, we haven't seen that, but here's what I think is different. We've never had, uh, a president like Donald Trump, uh, who, uh, who who's, uh, takes such um, delight and has such a tropism toward uh, picking at the scab and trying to provoke anger, antipathy, and hate for uh, f- for one another uh, in terms of one American to another. Most presidents try and and de-escalate. He thrives on escalation. It's the only thing he knows. And my concern is that as the walls close in politically, he's very very weak right now. If the election were held, he'd he'd be swept away in a landslide. He knows that his people know that, and that can change between now and, and and November. But right now, he's in a very difficult place, and that can take can cause a person with his disordered personality to lash out and to tr- try and become more provocative, more incendiary. Um, so I I worry about it, and uh, my hope is that the that the public can can endure this, that the cooler heads prevail, that our institute institutions hold up. Um, and that uh, um, and that there be more of tr- you know tranquil effect that that, that people can have, but it's hard. Um, it's hard because you know Trump has a huge microphone and uh, and he uses it, and the provocations are uh, relentless. Finally, uh, Pete, um, in the midst of all these challenges and fears and perhaps hopes, uh, what are you reading to give you some? historical perspective on, on, on the situation in America in 2020? You know, I've, uh, I've gone back to uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham city jail, uh, which uh, was, was written, was literally a, a letter from a Birmingham city jail. Um, and it was a very powerful um, moral critique of the civil rights movement. He wrote it actually to, I think it was eight or 10 white ministers um, and the ministers themselves in, in Alabama were not arguing in favor of segregation. What they were saying is let this civil rights 
uh, drama play itself out in the courts. Don't don't go to the streets with nonviolence, nonviolent disobedience. And King said no, um, that this was a moment in which that was required. And it was a it was a pretty profound um, essay, I would say, uh, even though it was written as a letter. But it was it was so informed. King himself had his 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 PhD, knew a lot about political theory, and he he wrote about uh, a just law and an unjust law, man, man's law, God's law, and um, but you know King's capacity to both. Um, harness moral outrage and channel it in a constructive way and always to draw the line um, at violence and to say that it was not going to be violent uh, in in the protests. And to get back to our earlier um, part of the conversation, that there was a, there was a moral center to, 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 to King and the civil rights movement um, that, um, that touched human hearts and, um, and created a new narrative, um, and ended up um, winning people over. And obviously, from what we've seen play out, that drama has a long way to go. And there's still um, a lot of acts, a lot of chapters that need to be uh, to be written. Um, but he was the right person for that time, um, and that capacity to um, to embody both righteous anger. Um, and love and compassion um, was was a rare thing, and we were fortunate to have him uh, when when we did because we uh, we needed him and we could we could use him today. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.